Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Adele McClay. Adele, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. It's lovely to meet you and to be uh, interviewed by you today. Uh, it's our pleasure to have you. Uh, Adele is an entrepreneur, an author, a life and business coach, a mentor, an investor, a podcaster. There's not much she hasn't done or tried, and we're going to chat about her incredibly varied background and what she's doing these days. Uh, as a chartered accountant, which I think that's a, an equivalent of a CPA in the States. Is that right, Adele? More uh, or less? Uh, good enough. It's yeah, slightly close different, enough. It's good a enough, different level yes. of certification in, yes. in uh, New Zealand, where she's originally from. And so Adele led her own multi-million dollar consulting business, working with New Zealand's leading corporations. She has also worked as a highly successful business consultant and guided small business owners to achieve greater success and been involved with various private companies and charities. Adele became a member, uh, excuse me, a member, a mother, a member of the mother uh, uh, sorority, I guess is the best term, <laughs> about 15 years ago. Is that right? 15 years ago now? Uh, almost, yes, almost? yes. Okay. Excellent. Uh, while, and at the same time, when she became a mom, she was supporting a client during their multi-billion dollar merger and later sadly endured some traumatic personal sadness. We might chat a little bit about that. Uh, but through a period of personal discovery, she successfully overcame that huge emotional trauma that that period in her life involved. She's now keen to use this experience to help others identify how they can use the vulnerability that they have experienced, which could be fear, failure, grief, sadness, or shame, and turn it into power. And we're definitely going to dive into that in this episode, uh, and thereby regaining control of their lives and becoming successful in business and in life as they define it. So in this episode, Adele is going to share her entrepreneurial journey, how she got to where she is today. And we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive specifically on defining success, personal branding, one of the things she's expert at. And as I mentioned, overcoming adversity as she has in her life. Uh, she is from New Zealand, or she is a New Zealander, but lives in London for the past 10 years, I believe. She'll get into that here in a moment. And so, Adele McClay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. It's um, it's really interesting having someone read my bio. I think, really, <laughs> did I do all that? Have I been through all that? But yes, thank you. <laughs> well, well, my pleasure. So, uh, you're in London now, correct? Yes, my favorite city in the whole wide world. Have you been to London? I have, and, and uh, we actually are planning to be there again next summer. I'm oh. taking my daughter for the first time. She's a freshman in college now. And so we're going to go to London and then take off on a cruise from Southampton. And so looking forward to that next summer. Oh, fabulous. London is just wonderful at any time of the year. So I invite all your guests, all your listeners rather, to, to come and be a guest of London. It's just a magical place. Why is it your favorite city in the world? Um, look, I've traveled a lot. It's it's one of the goals that my husband and I have is to travel to every part of the world. Uh, there's just the history, the beauty of the buildings, uh, things to do in, in London and the UK, actually, and, and, and in Europe, this part of the world. And London is a commuter city in that you, you catch the train to go places. And it takes me about 20 minutes on a fast train to get into the heart of, of London. It, it's We live very close compared to some. And uh, you, I go over the Thames River as I'm coming into London, mm. and it still takes my breath away, even 10 years later. And I look out at all the images I can see, and depending on, on where I come in, I'll, I'll see Westminster Parliament and Big Ben and Somerset House and Tower of London and, oh, you name it, you see it when I, when I come into London. And I think, oh, my goodness. I live in London. Wow, it's so beautiful. And it's just one of those emotional connections that, that I have with, with the city. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely one of the great cities of the world. So mm. much history, so much going on. It's just so vibrant. Um, it's amazing. All right, but you didn't grow up there. So let's uh, let's take that journey if we could and, and understand how you got to where you are today. Um, you went to school 
for commerce and administration and accounting and finance. So it seems that from early on, you knew that was something of interest for you. Finance was, accounting was, is that correct? Uh, well, not exactly, actually. So I uh, grew up in a working class family in, in small towns or cities in, in New Zealand. And um, for a long time, I thought I was going to be a school teacher. That was the, the route that my mother thought would be good. I, as it turns out, I was the first in my extended family of 33 cousins on one side and five and six and seven, eight, nine about now uh, on the other to go to university. So there was no reference around what university meant in, in my extended family. Uh, so I was going to be a school teacher and then, uh, Henry, you're probably old enough to remember Charlie's Angels, that program. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. oh I loved that program. And then <laughs> I wanted to be a Charlie's Angels so, or a policewoman, but I wasn't tall enough. And then a chef. And I actually left school for about a week uh, to go and be a chef. And um, one of my girlfriends was uh, completely devastated uh, by the fact that I'd left school in, in what should have been my final year and pleaded with me to go back. And and my mother, uh, while she was live, still recounts the, the conversation where I was on the telephone to her. And I said, oh, all right, then, so long as the school lets me does accounting instead of German, German language. <laughs> and so I went back to school and for some reason took accounting and, and dropped German and, um, and then went to university and did a bachelor's in accounting and finance and became a chartered accountant. But I actually didn't want to be an accountant. I just wanted the accounting qualification because um, as strange as it might seem, given what I've told you that I wanted to do, I was actually naturally entrepreneurial and I'd worked um, for oh, since I was about 13. Uh, my grandfather was a, a chef in, in various places, so I'd get uh, weekend jobs and holiday jobs working with my grandparents. And then I was an Avon seller. Uh, Avon, I think, is big in America, isn't it? And and I did loads of other things. So I was always interested in business and money. And I think maybe that's why I said, okay, I'm going to do an accounting. Oh, I want to do accounting at school. And then I went to do accounting at university. But I, the natural route uh, after doing the, the study was to go into the chartered accounting firms, so the KPMGs, Ernst & Youngs, as they were then and still are. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that much to the devastation of the uh, senior lecturers that I built relationships with. And I said, nope. I'm going to be a banker um, because I'd come to love banking. And this was in the mid-80s and banking was hot. It, it was just before the last crash, the crash of 87 that I'm old enough to remember. And I said, right, I'm going into banking. And that's what I did. Well, what I, was um, the attraction to banking? Money, deals. I, uh, I just loved the idea of, of doing deals, business, um, property. Property was huge in New Zealand at, at, at that time, and I, I saw what was going on. I, I was, I guess, quite well read. Um, and so I went that route. I got into banking as uh, a financial accountant in the accounting department. Six months later, I was made senior accountant. So the people who had been my peers and had started before me all of a sudden I was managing them and that was difficult for a young woman out of university. And then after I think it was just over a year, 18 months, I um, I just said enough, I, I don't want to be an accountant, I want to go into investment banking. And um, started looking for jobs outside of the bank because I was working for Bank of New Zealand, which at the time was New Zealand's biggest bank and country owned bank. And I got myself a job at, a, at another bank and went to resign and, and the group financial controller marched me into his office and said, we'd rather lose you into the bank rather than outside of it. So I've got you a job in investment banking. And, mm. and so I went to investment banking and, and I didn't do it as a threat. It was just I knew where I wanted to go. And, and so I got into investment banking and it was one month before the share market crash of 87. And that was, I still remember that day as if it were yesterday, coming into work and people were standing in front of the screens just watching the turmoil that was occurring in, in the Americas and, and English markets. And then life changed and it all came crumbling down. And so I learned how not to do banking because uh, the bank was bankrupted and the government had to bail it out. And I guess that's sounding a little bit familiar to people who remember the last crash that we've just had. We, that happened to New Zealand back then and uh, we ended up 
are spending a lot of time as bankers cleaning up the the bank's messes and and the deals that had gone horribly wrong and trying to reclaim money. And so that took me through to 1990. And as much as I tried, unfortunately, I I hit a glass ceiling that was a boys' closed shop, and I couldn't break through it. I I was one of the few women in banking in in that bank and at that level, and I couldn't break through it. And in the end, I thought. You know, this is not for me. I was unhappy. I was gaining weight. I was just was I was miserable. So I decided that perhaps banking at that time wasn't for me, and and went elsewhere. And then that's that's what led into launching your first business. Is that right? Uh, almost. I got into consulting and had the opportunity to buy into half of that business um, about six to nine months later. And I bought into that business half of half with another person. We were together two years. And then I bought him out, and that became McLean Company, which was my business. And I grew that over the following uh, ten plus years, to have twenty um, staff at its peak, uh, over two offices: uh, Auckland, which is New Zealand's biggest city, and Wellington, which is its capital city. And it was a multi-million-dollar uh, turnover business. And um, there was a lot of hard work, hard graft that went into achieving that. And as, as a team, we supported in the main New Zealand's bigger corporates and biggest corporates to be more successful. So we worked with senior managers, line managers to look at what they were trying to do either in their organizations or in departments to achieve their strategy. And it was a business transformation business. So we would structure the people side of it with them, structure the organization charts uh, and recruit into those, right, do all the position description writing and, and recruit either within the organization or beyond it. I, I owned a, a search firm and recruitment company as well. And uh, we did work for the public sector, major corporates and uh, the charitable sector. And I also, uh, even though I was quite young still, uh, had developed a, a very good reputation for what I could do and also mentored a lot of senior executives and chief executives in, in business in New Zealand because those roles are very lonely and they need people to talk to. So. I, I did that as well. So I want to go back a moment. You mentioned, I believe, is on the website that uh, when you were at school, and I'm sure that lasted for a little bit beyond that, you said, I was terrified of public speaking and debating. So I'm curious as to how you overcame that. Uh, throwing yourself in the deep end. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Look, I can remember being at... Um, what we would call high school, so not not university. Uh, I've got to get the terminology right here. Right. So college for you is university, right? Correct. Yeah. So high school. So in my undergraduate um, years. Uh, so it's yeah, regular you went to school. A type of you probably more college preparatory, perhaps, is what you were in, right? Uh, in New Zealand, we talk about primary school, which is for the junior little children. Then we ha either have high schools, grammar schools, or colleges. To, then that takes you up to about 18 years of age. Then, so then a college is kind of equivalent to what we would probably call more of a preparatory school in the States. Not, it's not perfectly aligned, but more along those. Yeah. In other words, you knew your path was university. University. So university is, yeah, is is the tertiary qualification uh, or place to go. One of there are other options as well. Uh, but in in what we call high school, I can remember being asked to do, join debating teams in, in English class, and I would I, I just would not do it. I was absolutely terrified of the idea of having to stand up, come up with arguments, whether it be planned or impromptu. Um, in that forum, I was terrified of having to stand uh, in class and read books aloud, as as you often do when you're reading a, a book as, as a class exercise, where you might get to read a page each aloud, and, and the rest of the class is, uh, is listening. I would go home and read that book cover to cover, knowing that that was going to happen. I was just really scared of it. And and then while I was in banking, actually, I uh, um, I think it's on my LinkedIn profile. I became a, uh, actually, I became a leader, a young woman leader in the Institute of Chartered Accountants of New Zealand. They wanted to reestablish the women's group. And a woman was getting it going and asked me to get involved and somehow I'd hit their radar. So I said yes. And that threw me on two stages. And I remember the, the day we launched that, we thought we'd get a handful of women coming to this meeting to establish this group of, of women within this organization. And we got 130 women packing out what was a tiny room because we thought we would get a handful. And I had to stand there making speeches. And 
that was the beginning. I thought, I love this. I, this is, and I was apparently I was inspiring. And I even occasionally today, people still remember that, and they remember me by that speech. And that was 1989. Wow, so, uh, so, eight, so all of a sudden, it just clicked for you that actually I'm good at this and I'm enjoying it. Yes, and and then I became a counsellor, a national counsellor on what is now um, what was then called the Institute of Chartered Accountants of New Zealand, and so that was representing members in, in the city I was in, and I was asked to do a lot of speeches. So I was regularly on stages, giving speeches, and then in my own company, I uh, was giving speeches. I was being called by the media. I also had um, allocution lessons around that time because like you said earlier I'm from New Zealand and sometimes the New Zealand accent can be a little challenging on the ears and and so I learned to round my vowels as they say so my accent was a little easier on the ears I, I don't think I had a, a, a difficult accent anyway but I just wanted to be good at speaking and and keynote speaking so I I just threw myself into it and and brought people around me who could help me Okay, so let's come back to the, the, your your first business that you found in McClay and Company. One of the other quotes I read is you said, quote, going solo for the first time was scary, but I loved the freedom of being able to create my own future. So I think that probably highlights how you were thinking that it was about now being empowered to create your own future, particularly in light of that glass ceiling that you mentioned that you had hit prior to that, right? Absolutely. So when I got the opportunity to purchase half of half with another person, I thought, wow, great. And and in that first, we were together two years and I earned a lot of money and I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I, I'm earning all this money and I'm having fun. And then I could see the opportunity to take that business to the next level, the next level and the next level. But my business partner had the glass, his own glass ceiling around what he wanted to achieve. And so we were not destined to be together for a long time. So I bought him out and, and the, the, um, the visionary was unleashed in, in me. And, and so when I, um, then bought him out and changed the name to McLean company, it was my own business and, um, the future began. And, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound easy. It was not easy. Um, because he was a major income generator. So was I, I had staff and all of a sudden we lost half the income generation and new staff. And I, I had every imaginable, um, issue in business that, that you could probably guess. And some actually I had some that I never expected to deal with. Um, but there was a determination for me around success. And in 1994, I read, which was when I was setting up the business, I read two uh, influential books for me at that time. One was The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And the other was by a New Zealand author, Dr. Nick Marsh, called The All-Star Company. And that was uh, thinking about companies in the context of circuses. And they were just incredibly impactful. So we systemized everything to do with McLean Company. And our systems were written, they were manuals. You know, everybody had to write everything down in, in a manual. So uh, it was systemized. Automation was less of a thing in those days. And it became the McLean way. So everybody referred to the McLean way. <laughs> and that, that helped us to scale the business into, into two offices and put a manager in one for me to go and grow, grow the business uh, in the other. And, and so while cash flow was always a problem, we had great clients, but we had New Zealand's biggest client companies as clients, but the internal systems around payment were painful. So cash flow was a nightmare. And you had high performing staff, low performing staff, not enough work, too much work, you know, you name it, I had to deal with it. But we got there. And what was your definition of success back then, if you can recall? Oh, that was easy. <laughs> At the time when I uh, made it, it was paying myself big money. Uh, I bought a house which at the time wasn't um, a million dollar house, but it's I think the very house that I bought is worth over two million dollars now in New Zealand. But at that time, it was top of the line in terms of house. I had a sports car, I had designer clothes, travel, um, jewelry. Uh, it was physical. It, uh, I had a good reputation. Uh, my company was working with the leading corporates in New Zealand and winning preferred supplier agreements, so they would only come to us. Uh, or, or one or two, three companies were on the preferred supplier agreement list, and we would get the lion's share of the work really low turnover of staff. Uh, they loved working with us. And when they left, they didn't leave to go to competitor companies. They went to evolve their career in other places. So, so all of these things were about how you defined success back then. Is that what I'm gathering? Yes. And how does that 
evolved to today? Uh, well, in uh, 2002, I, w- I still had my business. And in June of that year, I brought my two teams together in, in one of our offices and we were planning the future of the business. It was a big strategy day. So uh, we I walked into the meeting and there were loads of people, lots of noise, and they looked at me expectant- expectantly. And I stood and looked at them all and said, thank you so much for you know, being a part of the team. We've created a really successful company. We're here to plan the future of the company. And I've actually made a big decision. In one month's time, I'm going to close the company and I'm going to uh, make you all redundant. Now, in American language, that means I'm going to fire you and pay you severance, yeah, lay you off. Why? Because four months earlier, I had given birth to the most beautiful baby girl and she was a long time coming. I was an older mother, uh, 39 years of age when I gave birth to her, almost 40. And while she was our first born, she was not our first baby. We had had two unexpected uh, miscarriages at various stages in, in the uh, those pregnancies, which you can imagine was devastating. And uh, Henry, are you, are you a dad? I am, yes. And we, we went through uh, uh, several miscarriages ourselves. So I can, mm. at least from the father's perspective, relate. It's not as traumatic, I think, as what the mother goes through. But you may recall the moment you met your children or your child for oh, the very yeah. first time and you fell in love and, and that happened to me. So this this woman that always saw herself as this career woman and I, I had a, I had a view on what how life was going to be. I was going to meet an older man uh, who had a ready-made family and that he would respect me as a businesswoman and that we were just going to carry on. And um, I got that half right. I met the older man. He had a ready-made family, so I do have a stepson. But what I hadn't factored into the equation was that he'd like some more children. <laughs> and we were both young enough to do that. And and so we went on this journey of uh, deciding to have uh, between us four children. So there's Alex, my stepson, and our daughter. And, and then the idea was to have two more. And so my priorities changed. And after the birth of our daughter, um, and as you said in my bio, I gave birth to Jammer, who's nearly 15, uh, during the multi-billion dollar merger of three companies into what is now New Zealand's biggest company called Fonterra. And we were doing a lot of work for that. So I um, went I, I left work on a Wednesday, told the key clients we were working with that my husband was taking me on a last hurrah, a little holiday before the birth of our daughter in, in three months' time. And I'll be back next Monday. And what they didn't know was that I gave birth. My staff were <laughs> sworn to secrecy. Mm. And I went away, gave birth by cesarean uh, the next day. Uh, so that was Tuesday. Went gave birth on a Wednesday, went back to work on Monday. And... Um, because we were dealing with the, the biggest deal in, in New Zealand um, at that time, and it's just the way it was. But you'll have listeners thinking, oh, my goodness, how could she have done that? I what done I say what? was the, the closing of the business. Well, well, two things. How could she have gone straight back to work after giving birth by cesarean? And then how could she have closed the business? But what I realized five months later after giving birth and, and completing the lion's share of that multi-billion dollar merger with the company was that, the financial success of my business also gave me something else that gave me choice and it gave me freedom. And I tell this story quite a lot because I, I then look at the community of, of business owners I'm, I'm sharing that story with and say, why did you go into business? And generally it's about freedom and money and assets sometimes. And many business owners are not achieving that level of financial stability and, and success or having the choices that they want, that level of freedom. And if that's why you went into business, why not? And what has to change for you to achieve that? So I'd come to the end of the line, really, when you've done the biggest merger in the country's, country's history, and, and even uh, what 14 years later, it's still the biggest merger. There's nothing more to achieve. And I just couldn't see where to go from there. And my priorities had changed. And while in the moment when I announced it to my staff that I was severing them and, and making them, paying them out, um, there were tears, there was shock and fear, as you would expect. Once they got over that, they all supported me and every single one of them, bar two, got jobs within a month. So they left and went into new jobs. The two who didn't had uh, circumstances such that they didn't need to work and took time out by choice. And they all helped me to close the two offices down and, and do everything one had to do to close the office, uh, close the company so that I could go and have some time and be a mum and, and have a bit more flexibility. I, I knew I wasn't going to be a full-time stay-at-home mum. That wasn't me. I just needed more 
flexibility in my schedule in order to, um, yeah. But it's important to note because a lot of people say to me, well, why didn't you put a manager in there or why didn't you sell the company? Yeah, exactly. Why didn't you move it into, I mean, you had already put systems in place. You talk about Michael Gerber. That's exactly the philosophy. So did you just feel like you could not step back from it? There was a bit of that. It was also the industry was changing. I think I was bored of it. I'd done it for 12, 14 years. Yeah, it seems um, to me like you just, it, it's that the birth of your child, you had a 180. All of a sudden, this was just not what you wanted to do anymore. Correct. Yeah. And, and yes, I could have put a manager in. I had actually brought a manager in, uh, lining him up to be that person uh, when this event occurred, and it just didn't feel right anymore. If I had sold the company in and I had had, had been approached, uh, so I knew an approximate value of the company, uh, but with a service-based business, one uh, I, as the owner, and given my name was on it, I would have to have gone and worked for the, the buying entity for two years before I got the earn out. And, of course, that would have defeated the purpose of yeah, what I was trying yeah, to achieve. No, no doubt. That's, that's one of the challenges of that type of a business yeah. is you, you, especially because you were so much part of the brand, which yes. I have to believe is part of what's led you to now focus on building a separate personal brand. Yes. Oh, actually, there is another side note to that. I just need to tell you to allay the concerns of of some around this, that I did go off and for the following four years, um, and coming back to that point around personal brand, I I didn't refer to it as my own personal brand Mm -hmm. back then. So we're talking 2002 through to the end of 2005 here. I I would have said I had a great reputation as a a businesswoman. So clients um, that I'd had and people who'd heard about me knew what I'd done would still call me from time to time and say, would you come and do this? Would you come and do that? So I selected projects that personally worked for me and my circumstances at the time. And over that four-year period with the projects I selected, I actually made as much money as I would have if I had sold the business um, in 2002 and had to stay working for two years. So I did not see that coming. That was not part of the plan. But that was when, when sometimes you make a big decision. And my husband and I said, look, we've been successful yeah, the money would be nice, but it's not everything. And you know, given we had you know family aspirations, uh, we wanted some flexibility. Let's just let the money ride. Mm-hmm. This you know focusing well, on the right. You thing made a big time. decision for all the right reasons, and so that's I think that was key to it as well. I have to believe. Yes. Um, but then, so when does this concept of the importance of a personal brand really come into focus for you? Uh, well, we uh, in 2006 came to the UK and I quite literally knew nobody. Uh, I, I have an elderly um, relative, he's 102 in Scotland and a couple of other relatives up there. My mother was uh, from Scotland until she passed away living in New Zealand and I had a couple of friends here. And so I had to start from scratch and uh, decided to focus on uh, the small business market and, and property investment actually to start with. Um, and then you know, I've built a, a very uh, considerable network um, with the work that I've done. And as business has continued to change in, in the way in which we connect and, and, and get found, uh, I, I've recognized the importance of personal branding, which is why I've written about it. And, and it's, the, it's being able to answer the question, how do you stand out in the market that you're in as the expert, as the go-to person in your niche. How are you going to stand out? And if you're just relying on the name of your company, you're missing a trick. People buy from people or humans buy from humans. And when people think of your name, what are they thinking about? Are they recognizing you as the expert in that thing that you do? So that's personal branding. And then when they get to know you and experience what you do, that becomes reputation. Can you give me an example of, and I know you have a whole system, the, the personal brand star system, but we're not going to have time to get into it in detail, but give me an example of where someone, I'm a small business owner and everything is behind my business name. How do I start to build a personal brand? So if everything is behind your your business name, uh, you, you need to do both so that when because it's you the human who goes networking or is on social media and and whatever else that you do to get noticed and so you 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 do both so get a website for a start so have a um a great website in your personal name so henrylopez.com if you haven't already got one henry um linkedin have a fabulous uh profile on on linkedin that's that's stuffed with with keywords so i you mentioned my uh personal brand star system and it's the seven plus one P's of personal branding. Now, I'm not going to go through them all, but 
one of the P's is is positioning, being really clear about what it is you do and the market you serve and and then go after that market and be clear about the differentiation that you offer in that market. What makes you different from your competitor? So Mike Smith and in, in, who competes with you, why are you different? Why are you good? And and go out and and announce that and talk about that so people get to, to know you, whether it be face to face or on social media. The next is personalization. Sorry, I think you were going to say something, Henry. But yeah, I want to go back to this point, though, because it's one of the things I'm challenged with as someone who has multiple types of businesses, I aspire to do multiple things, right? It's typical entrepreneur. So it seems like that requires some focus so that I'm known for something as opposed to a bunch of things. What's your thought on that? And how do you advise people who have very diverse things going on? that they try to specialize in. Or maybe that's a misnomer. I'm not specialized, right? I'm a generalist. Um, you and me together, Henry, I suffer the same problem. Uh, so for some people, it is really clear. They are a website developer and they do this type of work for those types of clients, really clear. For others, you and you and me, it is trickier. And, and so I think in those situations, we have to chunk up a little bit more if you like and just recognize that our our positioning is a bit higher up the niching ladder if you like than than down it so i have lots of business interests as well so it, i can only chunk down as far as saying i inspire and uh, guide uh, small business owners around the world to achieve sustainable profitable success. Yeah, so you've and I you've, do that you've in defined that ways. focus even though you're into real estate investments, you've got other things going on, but you know that as far as a personal brand goes, that's that's how you're going to achieve that. You got to be known as that in London. Uh, and that's the only way you're going to achieve that personal brand recognition is what you're saying. Uh, yes, so you mentioned my property investments. I, I'm happy to say I'm a property investor, own a lot of property in this part of the world and in New Zealand, and, and but I don't teach that stuff. I just, I talk about passive income and I have people who manage a lot of that for me and uh, that's just about my asset base. And you know, and I, if someone says, oh, I see you're a property investor, I'll say, yes, I'm happy to you know, share what I know, but I, do, I would never coach you on it because that's that's not what I do. My personal motto, if, if your community were to look at my personal website, says alive, passionate and extraordinary in business and in life. So my, my greater mission, if you like, is inspiring people to be alive, passionate and extraordinary in business and life as they define it. And I hope that I lead by example in that and the way in which I lead my life and my business side. So, um, but most of what I do is um, connected to business. However, just in connection to my personal story, which I'm happy to, to share, I am about to set up a social enterprise. I've now worked out how that fits in order to live my my motto of a life passionate and extraordinary in business and life. So that's taken me a while, I have to say, and this year has been particularly befuddling for me around this point because of my personal story coming out. It wasn't known until earlier this year. And so, yeah, I had the same problem as you. And and a lot of people will have that. You just got to take time to think about it and say, what fundamentally, what do I want to be known for? What is it that I, how is it that I make the most of my money? And, and you can have these other things. And if people were to look at my website, they'll see that I'm into cakes and exercise and family and all sorts of things. But mostly it's about business. Yeah. So small business. really, Zen, you mentioned your, obviously your, your model your, for personal life. I want to come back then to the question of success and how you define success now. So could you share with us your definition of your personal success now, how you define it? Oh, how do I find a success? Well, I think it for me, it comes back to values. Uh, I'm a very values driven person and I have seven key values. And if I can find uh, success in each of those, for me, that is success. Um, do you I wrote consider a book. yourself a successful person today? Yes but not good enough. <laughs> and do you think, I think that's a, is that always a moving target, do you think? 
No, so let me just, uh, no, it's not a moving target. Let me just come back on this. So my my values, let me just explain the values piece. After the death of my mother two years ago, I wrote a book on redefining success, which was with a major publishing house. I've just recently pulled it back because it didn't share anything of my personal story. So I've now realized that was inauthentic. So I'm, I'm going to rewrite it. But I talked about redefining success. So a lot of us have the traditional markers of success as the success measures like money and status and power. Uh, and you know, I had that with my first business. I described that to you. But for me, the markers of success these days are around my values, which are just as one-line headings, uh, one-word headings: well-being, achievement, which you could argue are the traditional markers, growth, experiences, relationships, spirituality, and legacy. So for me, I look to achieve things in all those areas. And if I can do that uh, in a long-term plan and then with yearly goals, then I feel like I've been successful. In answer to your question around my career, I achieved very highly early in my career, some of which we've spoken about. And then in view of my personal journey, I stalled for a long period of time. And I have now just recently totally come out of that because in coming out of that journey, I realized that actually some parts of my life were really successful around those values and other parts, the achievement part, the business side, were not and that if I knew I was dying tomorrow I would be really disappointed with myself because I hadn't achieved everything I had wanted to or was capable of in business and I would be um, dying with regret and I think regret is one of the biggest sadnesses that people can have and I see that in a lot of old people they live with regret so as I came, came out of that fog of the stalling I've this year um, reset who I am in the world in business and in life which is why my values are important and my motto came out and, and I'm just going for it in, in, in the next half of my life because I've just had a major a big birthday I'm, in my, I'm 53 and um, I plan to be working till I'm 101 and uh, <laughs> I've got I'm just over halfway of my working life and people say really I said I, you know, I didn't say I was going to be working full-time when I'm 101 but I want to be interested interesting and contributing to the lives of others um, and, and so I've just recently restated that so yes I have been successful I've, and in parts of my life continue to be but I think I've stalled in the business area and that's what I'm recharging now yeah it's great thanks for sharing that I definitely believe that it's a it's, it's a progress we're moving towards that and that's why it is somewhat of a moving target but success is do we feel good about who we are today and the progress that we're making? Are we moving forward to our values, our goals, or, and are we fulfilling that? I think that's the key thing. The problem is that, as we've touched on, is that we tend to be influenced to think that success are these external markers like financial success or being like so-and-so or, or you know, achieving success like this other person, and that's where we get hung up in my experience. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's really sad when, and I see this with a lot of startup businesses, actually, they think they're going to be the next uh, Facebook or Snapchat or whatever. And you know, those those businesses are you know, one in a million. Yeah, they're they're, they're and outliers, right? And that, they're that's, outliers. That's, an exact, that's a great point. And that's why I think small business owners are so challenged because we're given this example of Apple. Well, well the reality is I'm never going to be Apple and that's okay. I can... I can be successful within my own realm and what I can achieve and what makes sense for me personally. And that's success. But again, we have these, like you said, these external markers. And so we don't enjoy the journey. And I think that's where we miss out. Oh, and I have to agree with you. Personally, this year, the journey of this year has been immensely difficult and challenging for me at a deeply personal level because it's the year that my personal story came out because I'd, I'd buried it no one knew about it and when I was I blatted it blabbed it you know just told a random person that I'd never met before my story and she's a very influential American woman and she said Adele you're a speaker you have to share this story and I, I felt sick and and thought why has this happened and, and this I is the story this of the issues you had with the miscarriages or is there uh, something else? yes yes so okay. so what what happened uh, was just just briefly is in that after I gave birth to our daughter and, and closed my my business in that period afterwards I, I had another nine miscarriages at various points in in our pregnancies including losing triplets in our last pregnancy 
So while I was constantly being called back to do corporate work for clients, there were these incredible highs and I made all this money, like I mentioned, and there were these devastating lows because we wanted to grow our family by two more children. And as much as we tried and it was all natural, uh, there were no IVF, we were getting pregnant and at various stages through that process, I was losing these babies. Were you feeling like a, a failure? Was there a sense of failure? It just seems like there was a personal... You just mentioned how difficult it was for this to get out. Obviously, I understand how personal it is, but what was it that made it? Was there shame involved? I'm just curious. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you can tell already that I'm I'm a success-driven person, achievement-driven person, and David and I had decided we were going to be a family of four. So that was By what golly, was going to happen. By golly, you're going to be a family of four. We were going to be a family of four children, and it was just a question of when, not if. And and so in that time, that was leading up to the end of 2005, uh, we'd had those those very sad things uh, happen, and. Okay, I just kept believing. Okay, well, you know, we just keep trying. And so we then shifted to the UK. And for almost 10 years, I played under the radar. It's not that I did nothing, um, but relative to what I had done, I was under the radar because every month it was maybe next month, maybe next month, maybe next month for almost 10 years. And that's 120 months of it almost next month. consumed you. It was very consuming and you know, there were other things happening in there. I mean, I did build up a property portfolio and I was doing some consulting and my husband had a big job and we have no family here and we had a young child. So you know, there was balancing that. But um, the the reason no one knew about it, uh, not, not even my closest uh, friends and family, was um, failure. I just saw it as a failure. I, I had an image in my head that we were going to have four children. And I, I can see it even today that I was going to be standing on stage giving inspiring speeches as I do. And I was going to show a picture of uh, uh, the six of us, my husband, me, my stepson, who's nearly 30, our daughter, who's nearly 15. And then there's going to be a big gap and you'll see these younger children. And I was going to say, you don't give up on your dream. This is how hard it can be. But if you believe that you can achieve it, you will. And I, until not so very long ago, believed that. And unfortunately, Mother Nature is is taking her course on me and my age and things are changing and it makes it difficult. Yeah. And um, I mean, you, had, you had so internalized that story that you had created from yourself that anything else was failure, like you said. Yep. And, and shame, but you've not started, been able to deliver. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't deliver that. Look at all these things I do successfully in my other oh. facets of life, but I can't hear. So obviously beginning to talk about it over these last year or so has been part of the healing process I'm gathering. Uh, it's not even a year. It's about it's since September. I gave uh, my first speech on it uh, yeah. almost uh, three months ago wow. uh, or two months ago, actually. And I felt sick. I, I, I percolated it for a while. I was challenged in May of this year, 2016, and to talk about it. And I, I said, no, I can't do that. And um, so I went to ground and, and thought, why has this happened? Why has this come out? I started testing it with a few people and, and people were inspired. And I, then I gave my first speech on it. At a, at a one-day conference in, on the 16th of September. I will never forget it. And I thought I did a really bad job. I thought it was terrible. I felt sick at the end of it. I wanted to run off the stage during it. Uh, but blow me down, just two, so we're in no, mid-November as we record this, um, two and a half, three weeks ago, I was at a networking event in London. The speech I gave was not in London. It was in the Midlands in, in the UK. And uh, I was at this networking event in London and went to the bar to get a glass of water. And this woman looked at me and said, I know you. And I said, oh, do you? Hello. And she said, oh, you gave that amazing speech a couple of months ago. Oh, you were so inspiring. And we got talking about it. And I, I said to her, I thought I'd done a terrible job. She said, oh, it was amazing. You should, um, you know, you need to watch your speech. And um, and then a week later, I was going to a conference that I was a bit lost, didn't know where the venue was, couldn't see it. And this woman walked past me and I said, excuse me, do you know where this hotel is? And she said, oh, I've met you. And I looked at her and said, yeah, I recognize you. She said, oh, yeah, we swapped names. I had a hat on. She didn't recognize me. And she said, oh, you changed my life. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I was at that conference and you told your personal story. You changed my life. And I just looked at her. I was completely dumbfounded. I said, how? She said, well, you shared your story so vividly and so raw. She said, I've got a private story and I've started sharing it since then. And she said, oh, people are coming to me and I'm getting more work. And she said, I can't thank you enough. And I... I thought, wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing what happens. And, How impactful, and I, yeah. 
Yes, and, and I've been told that in other places, but it takes a while before it sinks in sometimes. Oh, I mean, it's going to take you some time. It's, this is just mm. it's so fresh, Adele. But it's so mm. courageous on your part, and, and good for you that this is finally happening. Um, I think it also ties into another thing you talk about, which is avoiding an unfulfilled potential. Talk to me about that, because I know that's a big, a big focus for you in helping people, and I'm sure yourself, avoiding unfulfilled potential. What do you mean by that? That comes back to this idea of regret, uh, and I recognized it, firstly, I think, when uh, my father-in-law, who's now deceased, uh, got Parkinson's disease, and it was a couple of years after I became a part of the family, and, and he went from a very agile, fit man, recently remarried because his first wife had died a number of years earlier, and he got unexpectedly got Parkinson's disease and succumbed to it, just gave into it and uh, he was born in India he was living in New Zealand all his children were born in India so my husband and his siblings born in, in New Zealand and uh, while Carl my father-in-law had talked about going back to India on a trip he was being tight if you like he wouldn't spend <laughs> the money when he was able so it was probably about I'd known him about four years so pre getting married and then post getting married he got Parkinson's and when he got Parkinson's and became more armchair bound he started regretting the things he hadn't done and one of them was that he never made a trip back to India and by then it was too late by the time he fessed up to it confessed and and the family tried to work out ways to do it with him it was too late and that idea of regret came about then and I thought and I don't think I've ever lived with regret I've lived with sadness and but at that point that was quite a long time ago now but in recent times I've had that regret uh, and I just thought I'm never going to be like that I want to when I'm 101 at the end of a busy day sitting in my rocking chair looking back on my day and my life if my last day happens to be that day I want to look back and go, wow, what a journey. I've I've contributed to people's lives. I've done amazing things. I've had wonderful experiences. I've had people, fabulous people in my lives, you know, around all my values essentially. And if, if this is my last day, then I'm good to go. Yeah. And and it's about believing creating a dream. If if you have that dream, a lot of people don't, they're afraid of it, but have a dream for how you want your life to be. And if you want it enough, and you have to question whether you want it enough, because if you do, you actually have to believe that you can have it. And then more importantly, get on and do the work and be prepared to make sacrifices to achieve it. And then be, have that um, that idea of, of no unfulfilled potential. Yeah, I think beautifully said. And I think if you said that, what you just said there to an aspiring entrepreneur, I think that's exactly what someone needs to believe in and and bring to themselves and say to themselves, because I think that's what it takes to achieve success as an entrepreneur, however you define success. Oh, absolutely. I have a couple of clients that, that have just recently started working with me and they're, they're solopreneurs, very, very capable uh, women in this case, but I've, I've had the same issue with, with men as well, where they've put an emotional ceiling on how much money they think they can earn in their businesses, even though they're highly qualified. And we got, we're unpicking this emotional connection to money. And I was coaching one of them yesterday, actually. And um, just for instance, you know, it's easy for her to, to generate £250,000 in, in revenue, and most of that will be profit. Um, but she wants to get to £500,000 and, and can do that with her online and offline work. And she's feeling, to use her language, icky around that. She, she said to me, I, I, it makes me feel sick. And, and so we started unpacking it. And, and I said, do you really want it? She said, what do you mean? I said, do you actually really, really want, um, do you have the desire to achieve that number? Or is it just a number that you think you, you should? And, um, and so she had to go away and think about that. And then when she comes and answers that, because she's still thinking about it, it's, well, do you believe you can? have it and, and to do the work. Um, and she's, she's a worker. So once she gets her head over the, the line around that, she'll do the work. But more importantly, I said, you can achieve it if you want it enough. But the other thing to think about is the giving side of that, because she doesn't need half a million pounds to, to live and to achieve the lifestyle she wants. We, we're clear on what she wants her lifestyle to be. I said, so what about the giving side? How much more can you do with that increased amount of money that you might make? Where can you contribute both your time and your money to help? Help the lives of others, and and so I, you know, 
it, it comes down to this desire, belief, do the work, be prepared to do the work. You can achieve it. And then you know, what can you do to give it? Give more of yourself to, to help others coming through. And um, there are many people that, that have the desire they think or the dream. I think they struggle with the belief a little bit, but they're actually not, not prepared to do the work yeah. and make the sacrifices. And you know, we've got these, too many of these reality shows and instant success, as it seems, on, on all the media that we see, that people think, oh, I can have it tomorrow. And I, you know, I have a daughter who's 15 living in that culture, and she thinks she can have everything now. And, <laughs> and it's not so that way, sweetheart. Immediate gratification, right? Oh, no, no delay of gratification whatsoever. The joy of parenting teenagers these days. Oh, I hear you. <laughs> um, um, and and young entrepreneurs, or loads of entrepreneurs, not just the young, uh, forget that we all make sacrifices to achieve these bigger things. And everybody that you talk to who has achieved success, however you define it, if you ask them about the work and the sacrifices, if they're being really honest with you, we'll talk about the, the big sacrifices they've made to achieve these other things. I think this ties back to what we talked about earlier about success and how we define success. And because so often for people, it's these... Uh, exterior measures, you know, uh, well, I, I'm a billion dollar company or I'm like Apple or I'm a millionaire or whatever it might be. And if you don't hit that, then, oh, well, I guess that's not for me. I'm going to quit, move on to the next thing. So that's all. We have this disconnect into how we measure success with something. And I think that leads to this desire for immediate gratification. But that immediate gratification is tied to this unrealistic, typically unattainable success goal. Yes, and it's one-dimensional. You're talking about being the next Apple or, or the next whatever company or the next unicorn. Um, but what's your health going to be like in achieving that? What are your relationships going to be like? Are you going to be in a loving relationship? Are you going to be a great parent to, to children that may come along? Um, there are other measures that need to be considered. Otherwise, it's very one-dimensional success. And we all know people who have success by those traditional measures who are desperately lonely, have all the money in the world and have no relationships or have poor failing health. Um, and I'm just not prepared to do that. So as an example of that, and going back to my motto of a life passionate and extraordinary, one of the things that I'm doing at the moment, Henry, which you probably don't know about unless you've been following me on, on some of my social media, is that uh, I am about three and a half weeks away from competing in my, probably my one and only, certainly my first charity boxing match. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm training six days a week to to box another woman who's similarly a beginner uh, for charity because it's something I've always wanted to do. Now, if I was slaving it to my business so much um, and working 20 hours a day on my business, I would not have the time to train, even though I do train at five in the morning um, and I'm working hard. But this is a really important personal goal. And I reconnected with that goal, actually, in light of coming out about my personal baby story because I felt incredible freedom after starting sharing my story and it just reconnected with other goals that I had that were personally important to, to me and I thought actually I can do that this year I can I can do this boxing thing this year and, and I am on the 9th of December and then that leads me into the next personal goal which I had when I was I was preparing for when I actually met my husband 19 odd years ago and I was training to enter a natural bodybuilding competition and then David and I met fell in love got fat had the baby journey <laughs> Um, it doesn't always follow that way, but that's what happened to me and um, come out of that. So next year, perhaps around this time, I will hope to be on a stage competing, which I in what I believe will be one only um, natural building bodybuilding competition, because I've always wondered what I might look like to have a six pack and bulging muscles and a really brown spray tan. <laughs> it's something that I've always wanted to do. And, and for me, that's about alive, passionate and extraordinary in business and in life as I define it. And even though my husband and my daughter and others around me are thinking, what are you doing? Why do you want to do these things? They don't say it with judgment. They, they say it a little bit with despair, particularly as I got boxed in my eye at training a couple of weeks ago and until recently had a really black eye. Well, it's not, it's it's not who, they, it's they, not who they used to think they knew, right? This is, this is a new you coming out to some extent. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, I've always been slightly out there and slightly outspoken and I take them on journeys that sometimes they think, what are we doing? But this is seriously out there, particularly when they know some of the other things that I'm planning. Right. Well, good for you. Good for you. It's, again, about having no regrets later, which is fantastic. Yes. 
Um, Adele, what do you love most about what you do today? Inspiring and informing. So uh, inspiring through uh, my knowledge and my stories and informing again through imparting real helpful knowledge, small business owners uh, around the world to be more sustainably profitably successful because there are many businesses out there that are not sustainably profitable. They talk about their top line, um, but they don't talk about their profit. And uh, for me, successful business is is about profitable business, not what your turnover is. And with the breadth of my experience working with major corporates and, and small businesses and the book writing that I've done and my own business ventures, I, I, I believe I you know, have a lot of value to add there and I want to give it. And that's again, comes back to my one of my values, I talk about growth. Now, I love to learn and I'm constantly learning and, and in learning, I'm also giving because you learn when you give. I, I see myself as a teacher. Um, so that that gives me the, the greatest buzz at, at the business level. And if I can inspire people because of my personal journey that's now recently come out, um, then that's starting to warm my heart. I'm still a little surprised about that at this time. But uh, if I can um, contribute to someone else's life through sharing my own difficult personal story, then that's very heartwarming too. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, um, let's talk about books. You've mentioned a couple already. One of my favorites as well, The E-Myth. And then you also mentioned The All-Star Company. Any other books that come to mind or are those the two you would like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, I'm a great fan of an oldie and a goodie, uh, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, uh, because I think that that's always useful. It's, I've got it in its original format and in a modern updated one. But actually a book that I would recommend, and I only started reading it yesterday as it happens, is Think and Grow Rich for Women. Uh, Sharon Lecter, she co-wrote uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and uh, I, she, she was asked by the Napoleon Hill Foundation to write uh, certain books that, um, you know, that are connected to that foundation, and so she put out Think and Grow Rich for Women. So I started on that just to support my some women clients and, and some work we're doing together, and I'm really enjoying that. And I happened to meet Sharon uh, just a couple of weeks ago. She she was in London, and we've spent quite a bit of time with with her and her husband Michael. Um, so I, I, whether a male or a female, I recommend that book to you as well. And but I actually, what I would say, Henry, is learning, lifetime learning, however you take in knowledge, be a lover of lifetime learning, which is another of my little mottos, whether it be podcasts, audios, videos, books, going to conferences, listening to things like this, just suck it all in and, and take from those things that you're learning from those things that most resonate from you and for you. And most importantly, do the work, apply them. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And those are great book recommendations. We'll have links to all of those on the show notes page for this episode. You can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. Okay, we're going to wrap this up, Adele. Could talk to you forever, but uh, we got to wrap this up. Um, there's so many good takeaways, but if you think of the last parting piece of advice or thought you have for our listeners, what would that be? Um, I'm looking at my wall in my office where I have lots of little quotes, and one of them that I uh, use a lot and is on my signature on my email is dream it, believe it, work it, achieve it. Love that. And where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and your current business? Sure. So if they would like to connect with me and be part of my email community, they can go to adelmcclay.com and opt in there. And I put pieces out um, once or twice a week to, to my community, business knowledge and other things. And I'm fairly prolific on all the regular social media. I'm quite big on Instagram uh, as Adele McClay, Twitter, less so, but, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, and if they want to find me on Facebook, it's Adele McClay fan and LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. But if you are, you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with me, please tell me that you've listened to me on, on your show, Henry, rather than just sending me that <laughs> standard request that says, I want to link in with you because right. that's not very good doing that. And it's not a good way to build a personal brand. If you do that. Yeah, nice little uh, tip there. Yeah. yeah. A take, little, yeah, a little personal message. Take a and moment then, and personalize it if possible. Yeah. Have a little conversation with me. It's the best way to, for me to notice you. <laughs> Um, 
So yes, so all the social media I'm big on because we we have to be on on social media these days and say my email list. Uh, and I have another brand too, which is my focus going forward: small business, huge success. And that has its own Instagram page and its own Facebook page and and its own website. Although as as we record this today, that the homepage is down. We're just redoing that, but that will be back up shortly. No worries, and we'll have links to all of that on the show notes page at the Howa Business. Adele, it has been wonderful chatting with you, enlightening, inspiring, learned a lot. We're going to have to see if we can't convince you to come back and talk specifically about helping with profitability because we didn't have time to get into that topic. But thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Henry. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciated it. Folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of the Howa Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dreams.